Naeem, how's everything going? Uh, all is relatively well, I'd say, in these times. <laughs> so, uh, hello from Vienna, Austria, which is mm. still a na- nice place to live. But uh, of course, the best times are in the past. <laughs> so is it still locked down there or something? Is it, is it kind of hard or crazy? Not that bad. I mean, it depends <laughs> on your situation. I, I, I'm pretty fine. Uh, you still wear masks in the supermarket and uh, it really helps a lot if you're vaccinated. So there's a lot of social pressure and getting vaccinated, but it's mm. fairly similar, I think, almost everywhere. Yeah, uh, that, I, that's something that we could definitely go into. But, uh, but you know, I, I brought you on because you're an Austrian economist and you, you have a particular uh, vision for the future. Uh, but before we get to that, um, can you tell us a little bit about your path uh, to becoming an Austrian economics uh, you know, expert in Austria, uh, of all places, where, where it was born and so on? Yeah, it's very odd that that's a very unlikely combination nowadays. I, mm. uh, I, I studied physics and economics in Austria and sociology as well. But in my studies in economics, I never really heard about the Austrian School of Economics as an economic tradition. I mean, Hayek is known and referred to because he got a Nobel Prize. So Austrians tend to be a bit proud, maybe. laureates. <laughs> this is kind of patriotism. Uh, uh, but uh, other than that, no, the tradition has uh, totally disappeared in Austria. Uh, but of course, the Austria of today is very different from the Austria in the past. Uh, uh, just a tiny remainder of what it was. And then, of course, the horrible Nazi time in between, mm. which led to an exodus of most scientists and uh, uh, entrepreneurs uh, and so on. So it's a fairly different place. Um, mm. It, it mm. recovered fairly well after the Second World War. It's a high quality of life, uh, but uh, it's not really a vivid place. It's a bit like a museum. Uh, it's <laughs> nice to visit. <laughs> the tradition wasn't alive. I got to know about it in the United States. And uh, oh, wow. the Austrian School of Economics uh, continued to live in the United States, mainly, I'd say, for Ludwig von Mises, uh, mm-hmm. who I consider one of the most important proponent, proponents of the tradition. Uh, Hayek also went to the US, uh, but uh, uh, remained much more linked uh, to Europe. And, and Mises really reinvented himself and, and started mm-hmm. to write in English uh, and teach in English. Uh, and uh, he is really to thank for passing on the tradition. I mean, there were a few others uh, from the Austrian school, but, but I think Ludwig von Mises was the most important one for its survival. Mm. Uh, it, it changed a little bit, uh, but uh, we are really, and I'm very thankful to people in the United States uh, to keep the tradition alive. Uh, uh, and then this interspersed global interest in the tradition, which uh, always survived at the bare threat uh, of a few people spread all around the globe. Uh, uh, keeping it alive due to the personal passion uh, for, I'd say, an interdisciplinary project of really understanding uh, the world and human interaction. Well, so uh, how'd you end up back in Austria, <laughs> of all places, after having learned all of the Austrian economics in America? It, it's funny that you, you know, you had to go there to learn Austrian economics when, you know, you end up in Austria. I've grown up in Austria. Uh, mm. My heritage is Iranian, but I've grown mm. up in Austria, so my first language is German, uh, mm. and I've studied a family 
uh, here. Mm. So that of course links mm. you to a place uh, e even more. I, I spend a lot of time abroad, so traveling a lot, uh, uh, unless there's a pandemic uh, mm. like right now. Uh, but other than that, of course, it's mostly a personal connection. And then of course, I'm in love with Europe for the heritage, the tradition, the diversity that's still there, getting less and less on the political side, but I'm pretty hopeful that uh, we'll see more diversity in the future. And Europe is still a great place to live if you don't depend on the salary, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd say so. Uh, but uh, for example, as a Bitcoin holder, mm -hmm. it's um, fairly beneficiary, uh, fairly good locations. Most uh, European uh, uh, nations, uh, uh, very favorable. Uh, uh, regime there. Well, so you mentioned uh, uh, something about Austria being sort of like the hotbed of a lot of innovation, especially pre-World War I. Um, I. I'm not sure if my audience would be familiar with it, but can you talk about some of the, you know, many uh, different intellectual uh, sort of innovations that happened in the early 20th century in uh, Vienna in particular? Yeah, it's amazing that there's not only an Austrian school of economics, but so many. I mean, there are three uh, Viennese schools of psychology, there's uh -huh. a Viennese school of music, uh, mm -hmm. there's a Viennese uh, school of medicine, uh, even mm -hmm. uh, there's a Viennese school of art history. Uh, mm -hmm. Then, of course, we have the famous physicists uh, who, mm -hmm. to a large degree, invented modern physics, uh, mm -hmm. uh, like Schrödinger uh, uh, mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, so, in quite a lot of disciplines, uh, it was a breakthrough. And that's why I call the time a kind of Austrian enlightenment. Uh, and mm. Austria at the time, of course, wasn't a tiny uh, German speaking nation state, but uh, it was uh, one of the larger empires of Europe. Uh, and mm. it was a multilingual, multi confessional empire uh, within which uh, Vienna was a hub. Uh, first, mm. it was a hub of administration, but then uh, fairly late uh, in the 19th century, it became a hub uh, of uh, economics uh, as well, mm -hmm. and, and, and business and, and, and finance. Uh, we had a belated industrialization, uh, like mm -hmm. most of the continent, uh, like Germany as well, but uh, in particular, the now Czech-speaking parts uh, of, of Europe were hotbeds of industrialization, and Vienna came for a very short uh, time, uh, a financial center and the scientific hub as well. And this mm. Austrian enlightenment is quite similar to the Scottish enlightenment, where you had the mm. same exchange between uh, entrepreneurs and practitioners uh, who had leisure. Uh, mm. And uh, uh, leisure uh, was the step to then really engage in understanding the world. It seemed like a very dynamic time, lots of mm. innovations happening. Uh, of course, this change in, in production patterns going from an agrarian society, which most of the Austrian empire was at the time, uh, to the new modes of production, it all seemed very exciting to a small minority uh, mm -hmm. who was in the hubs and who were aware of those trends of industrialized urbanization, technology-driven uh, innovation um, and, and finance in particular. Mm -hmm. So uh, very bright people took an interest in understanding money, monetary phenomena, and some of those people uh, were part of the Austrian School of Economics. And the Austrian School of Economics itself was part of a broader movement, which I'd call Austrian Enlightenment, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is similar to the Scottish Enlightenment in the sense that there it was the tobacco merchants who had leisure and listened to Adam Smith and so on, mm -hmm. uh, and had the coffee shops as well, mm -hmm. this <laughs> shop culture, where you have leisure and you have time to read the newspapers and, and talk to other bright people. And it was very similar uh, in, in Austria mm -hmm. that the place 
to B was the coffee shop or the salon, the, mm. the private gatherings. Uh, and there you had the brightest minds of your time with all the, from all the different disciplines, practitioners, theoreticians, uh, scientists, uh, artists, all coming together to the same venues. Uh, mm. and, and that's, that's really, uh, I mean, of course, a wonderful place uh, to become a hotbed of new ideas uh, but of course most new ideas are not good ideas so <laughs> a lot of very bad ideas uh, were nurtured in Vienna as well so at the same mm. time that uh, uh, you had a Karl Menger in a coffee shop there was mm -hmm. also a Trotsky a Hitler <laughs> a <Stalin laughs> so all the craziness of the 20th century was mm. there early on certainly a lot of intellectual diversity. And in the midst of that, uh, we, we get Austrian economics. Um, can you talk a little bit about the origin of the Austrian school? Because uh, I, I know a lot of people sort of understand what Austrian school of economics is about. It's a, it's a lot more a priori knowledge or what you would call rationalistic and so on. Uh, but how did it emerge? And, uh, and what, what, uh, what are sort of like the main tenets of uh, Austrian school of economics? The founding father is Karl Menger, and that's a very unusual economist who uh, fairly mm. early in his 30s already had his major breakthrough, well, mm. one big work of his, uh, which was very different to any economics textbook of, of the time. It's still very mm. readable nowadays. Mm. And if you read other economic tests from texts from the time or books, they are unreadable now. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so he was a very down-to-earth person. He started out as, a, out as a journalist and he covered uh, the stock exchange and he really tried to understand what's going on. And he had a very realistic approach uh, to society, I'd say. And mm. uh, so he really wanted to study society and he was closely linked to the establishment of that empire in turmoil, I'd say, really mm -hmm. trying to come to grasp with... Uh, uh, the problems of modernity, in particular nationalism and, and uh, urbanization, industrialization, technology, military uh, changes, uh, and so on. And he became the tutor of the crown prince. Uh, so he was very close to what was happening at the time. Um, mm. And uh, uh, so that uh, uh, approach, and together with the very realistic approach, shaped, I think, this tradition, uh, which starts out as a very value-neutral project, uh, project, really trying to understand. He sees that uh, society can't be united anymore around one big narrative, uh, mm. and he tries to understand what's going on, and he looks at the dynamic side of it. So that's very crucial for Austrian economics, very dynamic perspective, subjectivist perspective means a lot of empathy for the individual and really trying to see through the eyes of the individual and trying to figure out what are people intending, what are their ends, uh, which means do they choose. Uh, and uh, I think it's still a very, very valuable approach. Uh, mm. And with Karl Menger also we see a very interdisciplinary approach. Uh, he mm. would have used the term sociology if it wasn't taken up by French sociologists before with a very different mm. intent of social engineering and not understanding uh, that much. Uh, uh, and most of his books were about ethnology. So he mm. uh, uh, studying different cultures and figuring out what's universally human uh, about human beings mm. and then what shapes their, their action uh, mm. in itself. And then he was closely linked to the practice as well, not only on the political side, but on the practical side, his more important students are the lesser known, uh, like mm. Felix Omari, who was the founder of private banking in Switzerland, very prophetic mm. uh, guy. Uh, mm. and, and then very important diplomats uh, and mm -hmm. so on. But a lot of people who had a career, a 
br fairly brief careers within the monarchy uh, with the mm. practical challenges of, of uh, keeping together that kind of political system under the turmoil of modernity, I'd say. And of course, it turned out to be a failed project. But that uh, time of crisis, I think, was crucial for understanding. Uh, so the Austrian school uh, majored uh, through a time of crisis. And uh, that's why I think that a lot of very realistic down-to-earth insights uh, mm -hmm. in, General patterns without too much judgment because at the time you can't really judge first you need to understand what's going on uh, mm. and i think that's crucial about austrian economics and interestingly over time it turns more into more ethical projects so at the beginning it's very non-ethical very mm -hmm. value neutral uh, but i think it's eminently ethical to say you only judge once you've understood what's going on. So you seek to understand mm. first and then you judge. I think it's a very moral principle, uh, mm. but at the basis, I think that explains where there's a, uh, in a sense, an ethical turn then later on by uh, looking at society uh, without any, any blindness and, and, and uh, uh, rosy filters uh, and, and so on, really trying to understand what's going on. Of course, you see distortions, you understand phenomena of crisis, of pathologies, uh, and uh, that gets a more ethical dimension over time. So uh, you, you described like uh, Austrian economics having grown out of a time of crisis. What, what was actually going on that caused Menger to examine all of these things in detail from this very sort of like, I, I just want to learn what the truth is, that, that sort of very rationalistic, like, you know, uh, humble beginnings of Austrian economics. Well, I, I think it's one possible reaction uh, towards a time of crisis, because mm -hmm. in the time of crisis, it's really hard to understand what's going on right now. And it's very hard mm -hmm. to find unity. I mean, you can't just gather people around and say, okay, we got to change that because mm -hmm. an old system is failing, but not yet something new is emerging where you have a new consensus. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's obviously something is breaking down, but there's uh, no way obvious what will come after. Well, well, backing up a little bit, what was actually well, going on in Vienna at the time? Uh, you had all those modern ideas uh, with a mm -hmm. fairly old structure of an old agrarian empire under a Catholic mm -hmm. monarch. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and of course, you have the military pressure, uh, mm -hmm. because once you combine technology via the national state, mm -hmm. plus uh, the conscript conscription army with a mm -hmm. uh, uh, obligatory schooling system, which shapes mm. the identity of people and more or less turns them into cannon fodder. Uh, mm. And if you combine it with technology, in particular the railways, you are mm. able to move millions of people who, in a way, you've shaped their identity, you've handed them over arms, uh, and uh, that shaped, unfortunately, that shaped shaped the future of Europe at the time. And in Vienna, it was already seen those ideas of, of what it means national identity, what does that mean with mm -hmm. a realistic pattern of how human beings settle. Uh, yeah. And uh, a lot has changed. Uh, and, and most people are not aware how much has changed. We've had a lot of ethnic cleansing in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, created these uh, pure nation states. But before, of course, there were nations and identities. Mm -hmm but people settle in a different way. So you had the cities usually controlled by other ethnicity or, or control is the wrong term. Uh, you had other ethnicities sample in a higher concentration in, in mm. city centers than in the urban area. Uh, so for example, the birthplace of uh, Ludwig von Mises, uh, Lviv or Lembe, mm -hmm. Poles, Polish speaking Poles uh, in the city plus German speaking Jews. And mm -hmm. all around them were Ruthenian farmers. 
And Ruthenian, mm. of course, is, is Ukrainian language. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so it's very difficult to understand nowadays. And in particular, then when you see that the nation state seems to be functional and seems mm. to be working out well, quite well for military endeavors and those nation states that are best at controlling the most resources and people for their ends uh, uh, were at an advantage. And that, of course, was Prussia as, as the more modernized uh, competitor to the Austro-Hungarian monarchy. Uh, mm. And Prussia has, became, has become the model then for the Nazi Reich, uh, as mm -hmm. well as a more centralized, nation-state-oriented uh, uh, political structure that unites all the resources uh, and uses money and distortion of money as well to achieve that end uh, of mm. increasing political centralized power uh, mm. and uh, any kind of all the empire structures very different from that uh, because mm -hmm. more personal and uh, its loyalties uh, uh, and so on so very hard to come to grasp with that and uh, of course mm. it was obvious to Karl Menger that there was no uh, it wouldn't make sense to romanticize the old structures the full full structures so he was mm. at a loss really he felt very strongly and he turned about to be very prophetic he knew that the world he has grown up was about to go under that he mm. felt very clearly uh, and uh, uh, Ludwig von Mises even thinks that uh, it may have led or influenced the decision of the crown prince to suicide, uh, go for mm -hmm. suicide, uh, because wow. it's really hopeless. Uh, you see something is going down, another model is, is winning, and you see it's a worse model. It's, it's a mm -hmm. terrible model for, for most people, uh, and it doesn't look like there's hope for at least a generation. Well, so, um, you know, obviously Banger like does this study and comes up with some basic axioms, I guess, of Austrian economics, uh, you know, going in a more rationalist direction than the empiricist one that people like Keynes would, you know, trumpet. So let's kind of go through the basics of Austrian economics. I, I think my audience would appreciate it. And I like how you laid it out in your book, Austrian School for Investors, and, you know, go, going through sort of like the four basic tenets in, in uh, pretty much the first chapter. Uh, can you describe what subjectivism is and wh why that's uh, something that, you know, that can be an easy axiom for people to understand? Yeah, it doesn't mean that everything is subjective. Uh, so mm -hmm. still most economists of the Austrian school think that there's an objective reality that we can grasp mm -hmm. and, and we can find understanding together because we're looking at the same phenomena out of different angles and so on what subjectivism really means is that human beings are agents so they mm. are able to choose and mm. uh, uh, so in order to understand the behavior we must realize that we are not entirely determined by our environment we are not entirely determined by our biology uh, but it's mm. not even that much uh, epistemological uh, approach. It's more that it's the most practical way to understand uh, behavior is looking mm. at the intentions uh, of human beings. And we can mm. do that because we are human beings ourselves. So we mm. know something about the structure of our mind and of our action that we can apply to other human beings. Uh, and it's very different from observing particles, for example. If you observe particles, it uh, makes sense to look at outside causes and forces. But if you look at the behavior of human beings, it doesn't at all make sense to just look at the causes or it wouldn't lead you anywhere. Uh, it's much mm. better to ask people, why? Uh, why are you going that way? What do you intend to, uh, what, what, what's, what's your goal in going that way? And that's, I'd say, uh, in a practical sense, that's the best way to achieve knowledge about why people are behaving the way they are behaving. I mean, you 
don't have to agree with uh, their intentions. And, and uh, of course, uh, one of the major insights of Austrian economics is by going that way and really having empathy for people, you understand how important error is and how important mm. learning is and, and uh, changing mm. our ways and, and how dynamic and thus complicated it is. So it's endless feedback loops uh, uh, where we change our behavior based on changed uh, anticipation of the future, uh, based on, on the actions of other people and so on. So that was also a very early uh, important understanding of Austrian economics. That's a kind of emergent order. It's not an imposed mm. order. It's not something that you can top down understand easily, but it's much easier to understand the bottom up principles uh, uh, about uh, how this kind of order is achieved without knowing in advance the result and, and the specific pattern uh, of mm. that order. Uh, and that's something that was discovered at about the same time in physics as well, a little bit later mm. even in physics, uh, um, but uh, it's, it's much more part of the physical uh, physicists' consensus nowadays than it is part of the economists' uh, consensus that uh, really societies are complex phenomena and that that's why you need different epistemological methods uh, than you use for simple uh, mechanistic uh, phenomena. Uh, mm. So society is more akin to uh, living uh, entities, mm. Uh, mm. organic entities. And, and that's, uh, I, th I think, one, one of the root uh, base uh, axioms, if you want to say, about Austrian mm. economics, understanding or, or respecting that kind of complexity and that human beings are agents and, and that you're a human being yourself and you have this empathy uh, in trying to understand. You don't treat other human beings just as particles, as something that you can shift uh, as a pawn on a chessboard or something like that. So there's <laughs> some ethical dimension to that as well. But I, I think mm -hmm. it arises naturally from the understanding what a human, human being is uh, and what makes it uh, a human being unique. I think you've described it very well. The, the This idea that you can have an individual that has different desires and that individual is very different than another individual. Whereas with uh, something like uh, Keynesian economics, you just sort of assume that everyone acts and behaves the same way, which definitely isn't true. And there is a subjective element to that. And that's something that Austrian economics takes into account, which Keynesian and other schools of economics actually kind of ignore. Um, and I, I really like what you said about this bottom up approach versus a top down approach. Um, you know, in, in a rationalistic framework, you, you more or less have to go bottom up, whereas in a uh, more empiricist framework, you, you go from the numbers and try to figure out why the numbers are and then, and then adjust the numbers or, or by with policy and so on. Uh, all right. So uh, the second one that I wanted to talk about is marginalism. And this uh, this idea of marginal utility is, of course, an important part of Austrian economics and is uh, you know, like it, from an empiricist approach, it's it's just the price is the price and that's it. it whereas Austrians have a much more uh, subtle and I think a mu much more satisfying way of determining, you know, what, uh, you know, why you arrive at a price and how it's different for everyone. So could you explain marginalism a little bit? Yeah, it's uh, behind the idea that uh, price is not a result of the process or price building mm. is a process uh, and it's a dynamic process. Uh, so you mm. look at infinitesimal changes uh, mm -hmm. and that means you really look at the context of each action, where you are at, and you look at where it changes. So uh, mm. if you're into mathematics, it's really more about the differential quotient. It's, it's where mm -hmm. there is really the chain where the curve turns uh, more or less. And, and that's why you look at the infinitesimal parts. Uh, and it mm. also means that you don't have a homogeneous 
homogeneous structure. It's changing behavior, it's dynamic behavior, which the context is very important. The relative units uh, that you choose upon are very important. Uh, and uh, uh, that uh, leads to, to that kind of understanding that uh, society uh, emerges out of diversity and, and mm. people not only that we are different, but we are in different contexts at different points of time, different points uh, in space as well. Uh, mm. And uh, all those infinitesimal changes uh, then are, can be much more important uh, uh, than, than anything that seems like absolute and objective uh, and so on. There's a lot of diversity as well in, in marginalism, I think, and a lot of the dynamics is in the marginalist uh, principle. Uh, and it was really used to, to understand the diversity uh, of human interaction and, and under, mm. understanding why there's still a kind of consensus pro process that's possible it can emerge uh, from people mm. coming from different sides uh, uh, and then meeting in the infinitesimally small but crucially important points uh, um, mm. uh, so it's, it's really looking into the process so still you can use the kind of curves you know from mainstream economics but you don't look mm. at the point so much you look at the dynamics uh, of people mm. Uh, finding out about the preferences of other people, adopting their preferences to those preferences and so on. And, and in the dark, uh, figuring out where there's a pos possible synergy and win-win uh, mm. uh, situation uh, between mm. different and diverse human beings. Yeah. And, and for me, uh, I, I think learning about marginal utility, I was like, this is exactly just how I behave, right? If I have you know, for uh, cast iron pans or something like that. The fourth one is not nearly as valuable as the first one. And, uh, and that, that's just completely intuitive to me. Yet it's not a part of mainstream economics, this idea of marginal utility. It's just, okay, well, all of that, we're gonna treat all of them the same because the math works out a little easier and so on. Um, and that, that to me is one of the triumphs of, or the obvious uh, you know, superiority of Austrian economics is that you do treat units differently and you, uh, you, you kind of have to do that in order to do good economic analysis. Uh, now, mainstream economists would claim that, yes, they have uh, taken <laughs> over marginalism and the insights from the marginalist school, but they treat it only mm. in a very mathematical uh, way. Mm. Uh, and they really assume that there's something, something objective about the curves without mm. looking at the individual. <laughs> it's not just you describe something or use it as a detective device. It's really the... Uh, sometimes think, even if they say otherwise, is in the unconsciousness that the reality is mm. in the curves and in the models and, and uh, uh, the formulas uh, that they use. Uh, and there's the, the, there's the mismatch. Of course, you can think you can do marginal analysis, uh, uh, <laughs> but looking mainly at the differential quotients uh, and uh -huh. uh, forgetting uh, about human beings and realistic situations, uh, which are not all knowing and, and which don't all have those data points, but it's a discovery process. Uh, yeah, and, and that's something about like uh, mainstream economists that's always kind of confused me um, is they expect humans to fit a certain model, like the, the supply demand curve, for example, I think that you were referring to, uh, when a lot of times they don't, and it depends on the individuals within that society and, and so on. Um, you can know certain things about what people may do, but uh, like there, there's no way they fit this nice, even curve. And uh, and, you know, they're, they're often surprised when, you know, people act differently, especially given, you know, the, their equations that they kind of, you know, worship, I guess. 
Yeah, well, a good mainstream economist uh, would disagree. He'd say, no, we don't believe that the models uh, <laughs> reflect human behavior. We think that they are useful. Uh, and we uh -huh. know there are simplifications. Uh, now, I think they are wrong about why they are useful. Uh, it's true mm. that they are useful, but, but they are mainly useful because economists are employed to provide an, uh, a kind of legitimization and alibi mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so on. And, and for some, uh, you give it a, a scientific uh, uh, aspect or you make interests look scientific or you give scientific looking rationales for interests, basically political interests. And mm -hmm. that I think it's the main employment of uh, mainstream economists. And I think it's the main usefulness of models. So, of mm -hmm. course, there's a demand for models, but I don't think they are useful because they predict a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. There's no empirical indication whatsoever, even if you use the methods of empiricists, that mm -hmm. uh, those kind of this kind of modeling uh, would be any better in predicting something than just guesswork. Uh, uh, uh -huh. Guesswork even usually is it's better uh, than using <laughs> models so I, I think they're useful but uh, uh, they are not very honest uh, mm. about why they're useful and I think they're useful to find employment in the world as it is uh, with a lot of uh, organized political interests using in particular the distortion of, of the monetary systems to enrich themselves in certain interest groups uh, and uh, that's why most economists uh, employed yet uh, had worked for the Soviet Union uh, mm. <laughs> so the more planification, the more you need people producing rationales, uh, mm. kind of impossible planning that, that you try to do. And that's why in, in Western countries nowadays is mainly central banks uh, mm. uh, and anything related to monetary policy analysis mm. that you need. So even if as an economist you're employed, you'd be employed uh, either for a central bank or as an analyst for, for a commercial bank. Uh, trying to grasp, uh, trying to predict what monetary policy will look like. Yeah, I, I, I like this idea that the economist's main job is uh, producing rationales, basically, for what other people want to do. Uh, let, let's move on to the, the third thing uh, from, from the introduction chapter for, from this book, Austrian School for uh, Investors. Individualism, can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, it's uh, again not meant as a moral idea in, in uh, starting as a moral idea. Mm -hmm. It's uh, meant to be an epistemological idea. It's that's easiest to understand aggregates. It means people uh, seemingly working together, living together mm -hmm. and so on by looking at the individual motivations. And of course, they don't mm -hmm. have to be rationalist in a sense. Mm -hmm. They don't have mm -hmm. to be at all conscious. Uh, but mm -hmm. still, it's the best way to understand uh, social phenomena by starting from the individual uh, and not understanding individual behavior by starting from the social aggregates. Uh, mm. Of course, we are all contingent and shaped by cultures and experience and so on. So the Austrian school does not deny it. Uh, it's just, it's again, a bottom-up approach. It's you go mm -hmm. from the simpler entities, which are the agents, uh, mm. uh, which always have the possibility to decide against becoming part of an aggregate, against entering a social context. Uh, there's always mm. this alternative, uh, uh, but on the other way around, there's no society without people uh, mm. uh, keeping to follow the rules of that society, norms of the society. And there's no indication whatsoever that we are determined entirely by the set mm. of norms that, that we inherit from our parents. Uh, mm. uh, of course, the Austrian Congress wouldn't claim that they are all wrong or anything about it, just mm. we are not determined by them. Uh, mm. uh, and uh, of course, there's a lot in human nature that may explain that a bit. It wouldn't have made sense for us as learning 
beings mm -hmm. to just copy what we've seen. So we are, we are very mm -hmm. good at copying and learning, but uh, we always have the possibility to change those a little bit and try out something new. Uh, without that, human beings wouldn't have survived to this day and wouldn't have developed uh, uh, to this day. Uh, so it's just for, I'd say, practical reasons, not so much moral reasons, but then, of course, uh, you have moral implications uh, later on. Mm. But uh, we distinguish epistemological individualism or methodological individualism, as Hashumpita mm. called it, from moral individualism. So it's not really, mm. we are not claiming that uh, everyone should be on his own. Uh, to mm -hmm. the contrary, Austrian economics focuses a lot on the social context of interaction and finds mm. that the most interesting interaction is win-win kind of cooperation between foreigners uh, mm. which means we haven't inherited the sense of belief that we should be universally brothers uh, mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes we behave like that uh, we mm. can behave with foreigners in a peaceful synergetic win-to-win -win way and that's the interesting thing for Austrian economics because that's the thing that's diff difficult to explain uh, mm. Uh, it's easy to explain the cooperation uh, between aunts and so on who are all biologically related mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. very difficult to understand that kind of uh, long-term cooperation that's possible between human beings uh, uh, and that's where it becomes interesting so i think it's a very social kind of study that follows from this individualism saying okay human being if you try to understand it you see how it enters voluntarily uh, interaction and in society because it's to the individual's advantage uh, uh, by doing so. Uh, and so I, I think it's a very social study and that's why uh, Ludwig von Mises thought that the most important part of praxeology, what he called mm -hmm. in economics in the largest sense, is catalectics. It's understanding mm -hmm. the exchange uh, relations uh, and mm -hmm. cooperative relations between human beings. Well, I, for me, uh, you know, th this is the part of Austrian economics where you kind of understand that people have a free will instead, and they don't uh, act according to sort of economist expectations uh, or, you know, like Keynesian economics, like, oh, we lower this price and they'll go and get it or whatever. Uh, you know, it, instead of sort of thinking of people as robots, uh, you know, Austrian economics treats people as people with a free will, and they might be doing things for all kinds of reasons. And trying to understand what, why they're doing it is sort of like the, the job of the economist and figuring out, okay, well, all right, how did they get to this point? And, uh, you know, what's the benefit, especially in something like foreign trade, where you're not necessarily related, and there, there isn't uh, sort of this, uh, you know, relationship that existed before um that that for me is uh is what makes austrian economics a lot more human than say something like uh you know keynesian economics which is very much sort of treating people as numbers definitely so i totally agree that there's a moral side to that i think it's it's the respectful way to treat other adults and mm. adults that you want to empathically understand why they are doing something. And I think mm. a lot of economic discussion lacks that empathy. And I mm. see that uh, uh, in the dis how Bitcoin is discussed, for example, how mm -hmm. it has been discussed. A lot of the criticism against Bitcoin is really not even taking the time to understand why someone would have those needs and why <laughs> someone would see it as a means. It's just judging. Mm from top down uh, mm. without ever looking at, at the individuals. I mean, what problems mm. are they trying to solve? Uh, mm. Why has it been working for some people and in which context? Uh, uh, and uh, I, I think really it, it comes from that top down approach uh, where you just talk about something that is as if it's just an immaterial objective entity to which you, which you judge first, either it's good or bad uh, mm. uh, without trying first to understand why do 
different human beings act differently and why would mm. someone mm. come to different conclusions and why would someone have different needs than i have had uh, in my mm. maybe privileged life so far uh, mm. really not having the empathy and understanding uh, this diversity and how uh, uh, challenges can be very different for different people in the different spaces on the planet and different times of their life uh, and so on and what, what you just said reminded me of how uh, a, a big criticism of uh, Bitcoin is, well, it's deflationary. So that means that uh, people are never going to spend their money. Th this is uh, sort of like Keynesian thought process in general. People are automatons and they will only do uh, what homo economicus uh, would do. And that, that's it. Like every, everyone acts exactly the same. No one has free will. Every, everyone does exactly what our equations will say instead of what would be what what is different for each person and that that's sort of like the big disconnect between keynesian and austrian economics austrian is very respectful of the individual i like how you framed it uh versus uh keynesianism which is just everyone is sheep and they do what we think they will or something to that effect i think it's very down to earth because you come with criticism and say okay show me that individual where you fear mm -hmm. that he is put under an immoral mm -hmm. situation and where you mm -hmm. see a pattern of behavior that's disturbing to you and then mm -hmm. let's try figure out if it's really because he's adopted bitcoin that now mm -hmm. he's become that kind of immoral person can you point mm -hmm. that person out can we talk can you try to understand his behavior uh, mm -hmm. and then i think uh, a lot of it would disappear or, or, or lead to to either agreement that people are different or mm -hmm. realizing that you can put yourselves in the shoes of someone else and understand that we are not all alike and even if we are like where we are like we have different challenges different uh, phases uh, of our life and each individual is different, uh, which which I like about uh, Austrian economics. Uh, let's let's move on to the next one, which is this idea of realism. Um, and I think uh, Menger called it uh, casual realistic or something like or that. Causal. Can you, can you uh, or uh, causal realistic? Causal sorry. Realistic. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, could you could you could you describe this idea uh, to the audience? Yeah, I think it's in the original sense, it's, it's a scientific mindset, but not in the technocratic sense of today. Mm -hmm. It's uh, in the sense that you, uh, Karl Menger didn't believe anymore that you'll achieve unity between human beings because we all believe uh, the same thing or because mm -hmm. we are all alike. So mm -hmm. he had the hope that it's by realizing that we are sharing one reality, that mm -hmm. we can be united in understanding uh, this reality uh, and coming to grasp with it. Uh, so it's, uh, and then on the other side, it's a down to earth approach. It's you understand that you may not like what you see, mm. but that shouldn't shape the way you try to understand it. Uh, mm. uh, so, uh, uh, because uh, you think that knowledge is a value in itself, uh, that mm. you as a human being you have the capacity to understand, you have reason. And there is something moral to it, or rather using your reason than rationalizing a fantasy world, uh, which feels good, but is not good. And maybe to the detriment of other beings, where that's the worst case, where you live in a fantasy world and really someone else is bearing the cost of that fantasy, and you're just not looking at the cost you're imposing on other people. Uh, so I think that's uh, that those two sides of realism, one epistemological and the other, in a sense, moral. Uh, and I think it's born again out of a situation of crisis uh, in mm. a sense that uh, some people refuse to come to grasp with what's going on and other people mm. 
try to understand first, uh, and then they can detach themselves a bit more, not in the sense that they become uh, heartless, but they detach the personality that they understand that we are, of course, uh, that the world is shaped by forces that is not in the hand of one individual, uh, mm. uh, that we shouldn't play God uh, uh, mm. as human beings, uh, that's, uh, but we have reason to understand what's going on and that can give us hope uh, that there mm. is something that's not arbitrary, that's causal realism, that there's a cause, that there has been a cause before, that if you live through um, some kind of misery, you look at the causes, you're not, uh, you're not feeling uh, incapacitated only, you think that there are causes, which means you can learn from them, you can avoid them in the future. Uh, so even if there is no hope for change for yourself, there's a big hope of passing on learnings to the next generation. And that's why Karl Menger, for example, he focused mainly on being a good teacher and having great mm. students who then would become very important for the world. And, and uh, a lot of the things that I think are hidden, but very important uh, and crucial for the development of the world, uh, uh, and that I, I think is, is the moral dimension of, of reality of realism. And, and this is in contrast to sort of like the Keynesian idealism. Here, here's what it should be, and here's how humans should behave. And if they don't, um, you know, like oftentimes what economists get into is justifying tyranny in one shape or another. And we're we're seeing that to some degree today. Why is there this tendency towards that? Right, like this, you know, here's this ideal. And uh, we should all be behaving that way. And then they make, uh, and when reality proves them wrong, they come up with more and more complex explanations of what just happened rather than, hey, maybe our models are wrong. There, there, there does seem to be that aspect to other schools of economics. Yeah, I think it's the two sides of human nature. It's we are mm. neither angels nor mm. are we beasts. We're in between. Mm. And uh, language, for example, is a great tool for cooperation, but it's a great tool mm. for lying, and it has mm. been from the beginning. So there's always mm. this tension in human nature uh, between mm. the two poles or two sides, between the beast and the angel, uh, maybe, or something very high potential, uh, mm. and, and something of beastly uh, nature, where it's just your interest, your survival instinct, and so on, uh, that counts. Uh, and uh, so I think it, those are power plays. Uh, and mm. Part of it is instinctive, it's, it's what shapes, uh, patterns which are not catalectic. Uh, so of mm. course, a lot of social patterns that are not catalectic, that don't emerge out of respect for cooperation, uh, out mm -hmm. of seeking win-win situations, but out of enslaving uh, mm. other human beings and, and making use of their energy and, and their creativity and their resources and so on. And it's been always with human beings. Uh, mm. And uh, we are there uh, of course, we are unique in the capacity co to cooperate, but we can cooperate for very evil ends uh, mm -hmm. as well. So there's the challenge. I, I think you, we've covered sort of like the axioms of, uh, uh, of Austrian economics pretty well. And I, I, I thank you for that. So let, let's sort of bring this forward to today. And, you know, part of your book is talking about this illusion of prosperity. Can you describe that a little bit? Uh, of course, uh, I call it the nominalistic uh, mm -hmm. uh, illusion as well as looking at numbers. So it's, it's linked mm -hmm. to the illusion of mainstream e economics and, and it's linked to the illusions of statistics of the old mm -hmm. style physics, uh, which mm -hmm. assumes all uh, alike particles with the mechanistic uh, relations. Uh, and uh, it's uh, basically just seeing uh, money as a denominator uh, mm. and not understanding how it can be abused, uh, mm. how it become a means uh, for mm. certain uh, uh, 
uh, rather evil ends or ends at the expense of other human beings. Uh, uh, and in particular, it was the post uh, Second World War boom uh, in uh, Europe and the US, which was full uh, fueled uh, a lot uh, uh, by the uh, fiat money creation, uh, which uh, uh, of course had the positive side of providing the credit that would, uh, could have been put to protect productive use uh, mm. because the capital structure was not entirely destroyed by the wars. Uh, mm. Europe had a lot of destruction, but the most important things of the capital structure are invisible. That's mm. uh, mindsets, that's uh, skills, uh, uh, mentalities, uh, even um, resourcefulness of human beings. Uh, so they could emerge uh, pretty rapidly. And then, of course, this uh, uh, money out of nothing proved to be for quite a while uh, something that could go hand in hand with the productivity explosion, uh, mm -hmm. which didn't come out of nothing. Uh, it was still mm -hmm. the capital was there, it's just unseen. Uh, mm -hmm. So most people get it backward and they think that this kind of credit uh, or this way to provide credit uh, has been behind the cause behind the productivity uh, explosion. Uh, so uh, a lot of Europeans uh, consider themselves very rich, uh, mm -hmm. uh, less and less on the individual level, more and more mm -hmm. on the social collective uh, level, but are not looking at what they should look at which is capital uh, they mm. are looking at salaries uh, <laughs> looking at general collective ideas of what you can have for free uh, mm -hmm. kind of sense of infrastructure that's there uh, and they are not seeing that the real reason for sustainable wealth is productivity based on capital and that means the long-term employment of the means of production for pe for the things that people will need uh, and be able to afford in the future. So it's really an alignment between the preferences of the people and the production structure. Uh, and uh, it turns out to be an illusion if your denominator for your wealth does not match this kind of productivity where you can have mm -hmm. capital consumption, capital decrease, mm -hmm. uh, and it feels like uh, your spending power goes up uh, and mm -hmm. it's really like emptying a full fridge and uh, mm -hmm. it feels great until it's empty. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's an illusion if you don't see how much is in the fridge because it's hidden and you just take mm -hmm. out one bottle of beer after the next one and it looks like never ending stream of beers and you mm -hmm. take out two bottles of beer and it feels like you're two times wealthy. Uh, mm -hmm. But in fact, you've diminished your capital uh, at an even higher rate. And uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the wealth nowadays is capital consumption. Mm. It's true for the US, that's uh, true for Europe, it's true for China as well, mm. because almost everyone has followed uh, this model uh, of uh, combining uh, the, um, the longing for productivity, of, of mm. material progress uh, of human beings, uh, plus the capacity to finance uh, uh, that longing, um, but uh, without looking at the distortions and without looking at the invisible capital structure, uh, and how it deforms over time. Uh, mm. So the problem becomes worse over time and it becomes more and more illusionary. For example, the Germans, which uh, have the feeling that they are among the richest uh, mm -hmm. in Europe. Uh, if you look on the individual level, you find out that home ownership is fairly low, that if you mm. look at wealth per capita, even just using the nominal uh, <laughs> measures of wealth, you find out that they are among the poorest in Europe. Uh, because there's so little ownership, uh, so lot, a lot of dependency on salaries, which are then mm. used to have credit uh, uh, and so on. So that can be partly uh, illusionary. 
mm. and then of course waking up from those kind of illusions uh, can turn out to be terrible and uh, we've seen some of that in the us and, and uh, uh, parts of europe where parts of the middle class are waking up and feeling suddenly very poor because they feel that uh, what's important for their lifestyle is out mm. of reach uh, for them mm. uh, so having mm. your own home, having your own car, having uh, a safe environment to raise kids and so on, everything that was considered like typical middle class gets more and more out of reach uh, for individuals. Uh, so you have this mismatch. Uh, and then, of course, you're looking for scapegoats and so on, because you seem to know that on a collective level, you're among the richest on the planet. Mm. And on an individual level, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like a treadmill and it's a kind of mismatch. And whenever there's kind of mismatch, uh, realism tells you that there's maybe something you're not seeing. And then the mm. term illusion, I'd say, applies here mm. so uh you're describing this whole um game that they're playing with the capital structure <laughs> as, as a way to deceive people and then people sort of wake up to it what are some of the catalysts for that like moment when i guess in like from the matrix it'd be when you're taking the red pill or something like that what what what's the moment uh for a lot of people when that actually happens yeah, I, I think it uh, relates to your identity. It's how you mm. see yourself. And, and uh, mm. part of it is social. Um, mm. uh, and uh, if you've got the idea that you are middle class, like most people think that they mm. are uh, middle class, in particular in Europe, I mean, if you mm. ask a lot of people think that they are uh, middle class, and then you realize that what you thought would be an expression of having a successful life, not being a loser, uh, in a way, it's, uh, there's a mismatch. So it, it's not mm. a continuous uh, effort. It, it can be, it, then it's a shock, shocking realization uh, at some point in life. Uh, you realize you thought that you had built up something, uh, but uh, it's really not as sustainable as you thought. And, and you mm. feel much more fragile in your structure mm. than you would have thought. Uh, and uh, that's the same with institutions. I mean, it can be different triggers. It can be just a feeling of unsafety. Uh, mm. Like parts in, in Europe, we are used to living in the safest surroundings imaginable. Mm. But now just tiny changes in that lead to a big impact. And they are driving a lot of the, say, populist reaction uh, mm. uh, by nationalist politicians, which are just mm. reacting to that, that, that the feeling of safety where you can have your kids go out on the streets mm. and so on. It's just not a worry that you have if you made it, if you're not mm -hmm. uh, a loser uh, without mm -hmm. a home, uh, uh, living from day to day. But you thought that you've made it and then you've behaved, you've been disciplined, you've always mm. paid your taxes and so on. But you lose uh, uh, this, this car because we've outsourced a lot of two institutions. And uh, mm. uh, in a sense, it's good. We've come a bit but that has helped us focus on more things and other things and then once you realize that those institutions you've outsourced to are failing then i think that's a trigger point and then can can be in safety that can be in education uh, where mm. a lot of parents move because they realize the public schools are failing there are mm. challenges uh, they uh, interpret in a different way uh, uh, mm. but still they realize that they can't really trust uh, uh, and they've trusted a lot of uh, education, uh, wealth decisions, health decisions, and so on to institutions which are increase, increasingly failing and don't provide, provide a sense of safety. Uh, you need to just go on with your life. Uh, and mm -hmm. then it can be just one trigger and it's a sudden realization that, oh my God, I can't trust anyone anymore. And maybe mm. I have to leave. And, and you, you have the paradox situations of uh, lots of Germans thinking about leaving Germany 
mm-hmm. whereas a large parts of the population would love to go to Germany. It's like the, the <laughs> ideal state. And of course, I'm talking about Germany because it's larger and more people know it. Austria is mm-hmm. a, a smaller version uh, mm-hmm. of it, uh, much better in a sense because it's smaller, mm-hmm. but still similar situations. So uh, you, you'll have lots of uh, Latin Americans would move to Germany if they could. But mm-hmm. more and more middle-class Germans think about fleeing and going to Latin America, maybe. <laughs> to find it. Because if you don't have the safety, then you can take risks anyway. And then you yeah. become a pioneer and you have the freedom, the liberty that comes with being a pioneer. And mm-hmm. if you figure out that you've got to take decisions yourself on your education, your health, your wealth, and so on, you can't trust the institutions and you can't trust the professionals, then of course it makes much more sense if you try to put yourselves in the shoes of these people. But of course there's a lot of ridicule uh, mm. uh, in, 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 in the media and so on. If people taking unpopular decisions, for example, mm. the crazy thing of selling your investments and buying Bitcoin is considered mm-hmm. a thing crazy uh, <laughs> in, in Germany or Austria, but uh, uh, of course, you need to understand what triggers that. And that's a mm. loss of trust, of course. And uh, mm. of course, I think it's not at all irrational mm. um, because the trust has been abused. There's a mm. history of the abuse of the trust. We are high trust societies. And this high trust has been siphoned up for interest groups. Uh, so there's uh, really no alternative in being, in a sense, distrustful and taking responsibility for yourself and figuring out who to trust. Uh, and uh, you'll trust naturally, try to trust more in people where you can have, find peer-to-peer cooperation uh, in a mm-hmm. sense, or even technological solutions to the issue of trust uh, mm-hmm. uh, as it's tried uh, with Bitcoin. Yeah, and it's interesting how you describe it that way, because uh, you, you're you're saying like you're, you're um, you know, emptying the fridge, um, that, that fridge is basically trust. And when, once it's empty, it's, it's just gone. And people sort of have this uh, realization, or I guess, uh, what you would almost call like a class consciousness at that point, mm-hmm. where they've been deceived before. And then they're now like, okay, I realize that I'm part of the poor people. This isn't middle-class anymore. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you talked about um, sort of this capital structure sort of uh, very much deceiving people. So let, let's talk about it a little bit because that really has a lot to do with the monetary system that we live in. And of, of course, like all of the central bank machinations, can you, can you describe how that works a little bit and how people are deceived into thinking that they have more wealth than they have. Yes, the deception works quite well as long as you have catch-up growth. Uh, So it Mm. seems like if you have this kind of catch-up growth means that there's not too much innovation. You see other Mm. countries being before you. And the great thing Mm. about technology is more or less you can copy it everywhere, like software. Mm. Uh, you mm-hmm. can copy ideas, you can reapply them. Uh, and as long as you're catching up, as Europe was after the Second World War, mm-hmm. as Asia has been mm-hmm. and it still is, uh, it's easier with that kind of distortionary uh, credit-based financing because more or less you know or you think you know what you need to finance and it's just getting the fuel there or, or mm-hmm. the, the permission slips uh, mm-hmm. to hand out to people so that they can go along. It's really mm-hmm. when it's about the future where it come, becomes challenging and where, when it's about innovation. So the distortion is only seen after the peak productivity has been reached. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and then you only realize it because there are signs of stagnation. Mm. And of course, stagnation doesn't go on uh, 
uh, on, on a uniform level, uh, but uh, at least it triggers more and more of these realizations uh, uh, that, that lead to, to different kinds of reactions. And then it can, you can have breaks like uh, political events, uh, mm. uh, conflicts arising uh, that can't be just pay, paved over uh, with, with new productivity and, and new money to distribute. Uh, mm. uh, so a lot of the peacefulness of rich Western societies really is about the the boom time after the Second World War, where you can pay off every interest group. And it's mm. no problem. I, you can pay 70%. <laughs> we have 70% taxes in total, if you include the fees and social security and so on. But still every year we've become richer on average mm. and, and being wealthier. So of course, keeping 30% of twice what you had before still uh, seems like a good deal. But that has stopped. So we have stagnation. Uh, so we get more and more the feeling that we can pay off as easily the interest groups we had. And you would have to increase in an exponential way uh, mm -hmm. uh, productivity. Just keep up with the old promises and with the old uh, 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 habits uh, of trusting that those promises will always be fulfilled. Uh, uh, so that's a distortion. Uh, for a long time, the deception really works. And it seems to work in an economic way. And it seems to work in a political and social way. You really can have, if you produce the money that you hand out, and you mm. still have a population eager to more or less copycat a kind of economic development that has happened elsewhere and you import the technology uh, and, and then maybe you have some uh, capital built up in the past, uh, which is there, like, like uh, having a dedicated, hardworking population, uh, people being used uh, to situations of trust, uh, of lo loyal, loyally cooperating over long terms of time, which mm. of course is also capital that's been built up over a long time in the past. Mm. Uh, and uh, then it can be a match where it looks like it's really a miracle. It's like wealth mm. miracle. And uh, the deception can go on for long until it doesn't, uh, mm. until <laughs> after the peak, uh, there's stagnation. And then more and more, it's just things that are triggered. And you can't mm. really predict when and at what time uh, will be which trigger most crucial. Uh, but you can predict that we are within a time of turmoil. Uh, where this trust is lost because for many reasons, economic reasons, political reasons, uh, uh, but I, I'd say mainly reasons that can be explained by Austrian economics uh, mm. uh, is this kind of productivity is not possible anymore. And I, mm. I think the main reason is that we've caught up with what's feasible and to a certain mm. sense, we've e even regressed uh, mm -hmm. uh, in a lot of fields. We haven't had, uh, we have even technological regression and uh, for example, nuclear energy, we thought it would, mm. would enter an age of free nuclear energy and it was really destroyed in the bud, uh, mostly in Europe. In Austria, we have a fully developed uh, nuclear power plant ready to launch and it was never mm. started because then for political reasons, it was deemed uh, unsafe to go that way. And uh, so a lot of this creativity and technological development really didn't have a chance to develop uh, uh, with uh, a rapid flight like like the mm -hmm. Concorde, uh, uh, the French one, and so on. So in many fields, it looks like we've even regressed uh, to what seemed possible and achievable uh, in the past in, in, in the more positive spirit after the Second World War, where this catch-up growth was still there and, and mm -hmm. uh, seemed to be accelerated uh, by having a new global order of people cooperating, exchanging ideas. Uh, and I think a lot of people unconsciously feel there's a kind of stagnation. And if you ask uh, Western Europeans nowadays, do you think that your children will have a better life than you had 
Most mm -hmm. as big majority say, no, we think they'll mm -hmm. have a more difficult life. And of course, once the changes, that's the most important thing. And uh, also from Austrian economic, it says it's all about anticipation. It's all about the future. The future is shaped in the present. Uh, so don't mm -hmm. look too much into the past. Look at the anticipation, how we look into the future, how we go into the future. And there really are the big changes uh, that have mm -hmm. happened and are happening and, and are showing us the triggers, a kind of system change or system turmoil or age of crisis. Well, I, I really like this idea that you uh, you brought up of, you know, capital consisting of stuff like uh, trust in each other and like having this, you know, that that's capital that's built up. And uh, and what's what's interesting about current state of affairs, especially in the world today, seems to be that that capital is being spent, too. Right. Like there, there was sort of like trust in institutions, trust in government and things like that. Uh, but that's definitely breaking down. And that that, as you you've argued, is part of the capital formation or uh, or the capital that we're spending, essentially, uh, instead of being formed. Um, and uh, as you, I think, uh, very eloquently put it, uh, you know, the Asian miracle and the rebuilding of Europe post-World War II, that was that capital that was being utilized to build all of that up. And, you know, in like sort of low trust societies, you don't have that capital and it, it, it's much harder to build things up as a result. And that seems to be breaking down. So what are, what are some of the consequences that, uh, as a result of this sort of uh, breakdown of this other kind of capital that, uh, you know, uh, other economists pretty much completely discount and don't look at at all. Uh, of course, the negative results are obvious. So I'll focus on the positive mm. ones uh, <laughs> because there's a lot of abuse of trust and trust mm. being a siphon of, uh, mm. uh, as I called it, uh, you now have a chance to challenge uh, the ways we've been gone about and, and the ways mm -hmm. of our institutions, how they are shaped. And uh, you can unmask, in a sense, the games that they've been played and try to figure out better games, more win-win mm. uh, games, uh, uh, more synergy. So I don't think we've reached the peak uh, humanity uh, yet. And uh, a lot in, in that's uh, telling of, of the end of history. Uh, I think the positive thing is that the end of history, we realized that we haven't reached the end of history, that history is just starting and getting started again uh, and getting more dynamic. Uh, and that, of course, will bring a lot of turmoil, uh, a lot of people having to figure out uh, and a lot of suffering potentially, but the mm. chance to learn, the chance to improve, to have better institutions that are more aligned with our long-term preferences as diverse human beings, uh, without need to live together in a peaceful, cooperative way on the planet to fulfill the human potential uh, to its highest. And that's, that makes me fairly optimistic. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's why I think uh, I, I put so, so, so much interest and focus on practical uh, projects, uh, mm -hmm. uh, like, of course, Bitcoin, in a sense, is a result of the lack in trust in the financial system. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a profoundly positive movement uh, uh, with huge repercussions on, on our, uh, us looking in the future because we see there is potential to have innovation. Once you have uh, enough people and it's just a tiny minority, enough people uh, thinking that it's worth to try out something new, that it's mm. uh, you don't just uh, disrespect uh, certain very natural needs because you can't explain them. You try to figure out better ways, uh, uh, provide better solutions, a better infrastructure for human cooperation, uh, 
And uh, that's why I'm part of Free Private Cities Foundation. Mm -hmm. And uh, we try to, um, I think, mainly inspired by what Bitcoin has achieved. Uh, and in a sense, being an alternative to failing institutions, institutions where mm -hmm. a lot of trust is abused. By, I mean, the field of, of wealth and, and wealth allocation investment, I mean, one of the most scammy parts uh, mm -hmm. uh, that there are, where real trust, uh, con there are institutionalized con games. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so that's really consumption of capital, of trust uh, to a very large extent. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're having the same in the political institutions in the infrastructure of us not only working together, I think the infrastructure of cooperation is money. You know, mm -hmm. the infrastructure of us living together is politics or political institutions, the legal institutions, the legal frameworks. Uh, uh, it's really hard to pinpoint it because it has wrong uh, associations. Uh, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but generally, I think there's a field uh, uh, is hugely important uh, for people, mm -hmm. how they live together and then what kind of infrastructure they find in living together and finding um, uh, a way to cope with the conflicts that arise or prevent mm -hmm. them. Um, and I think we'll see a lot of innovation in that field. And I think that's triggered by the loss of trust, it's triggered by the failure of institutions and mm. people looking for alternatives. And uh, I'm hopeful that even tiny minorities, if they realize that there are means or there are better ways to achieve their ends, they can be an example. Uh, and so uh, that can be passed on fairly quickly because then it's about ideas, it's about technology, uh, mm -hmm. making things better. And that's really the way change happens. You build and you build better and uh, people realize that you've solved their problem as well and they mm -hmm. adopt it without being coerced into it by just learning, finding out, oh, there's a better way to achieve what I actually wanted to achieve, but failed to. Uh, and that's how positive change happens. So every change of crisis is, can be the seed of uh, uh, a new turn of innovation, of figuring out better ways. And I don't think that we've reached in the past the peak. Uh, don't think that there's an age where you can say, oh, it's really golden and there's no way to innovate up on that. Uh, uh, I think there's a never-ending quest uh, of, of uh, being even better as, as human beings and being better and fulfilling our uh, potential and flourishing. And there's no end to the human flourishing. And we certainly haven't achieved for most people kind of peak mm. uh, human flourishing. So there's a lot of upside uh, and that makes me, in the long term makes me optimistic by still being very realistic uh, and soberingly so uh, uh, in, in the short to medium term. Well, I, I, I've never heard uh, sort of seen it framed the way you uh, just framed it. Basically, trust is a method of uh, or, uh, you know, bringing a community together and enhancing trust is a method of capital formation that, that you can ultimately um, encourage prosperity by forming those bonds. And um, th that's what your uh, project, uh, the Free Cities project uh, seems to be about. Can you tell us a little bit more about what are the practical steps you're taking towards that? Yeah, uh, it's really, I, I, it's been pushed a lot uh, in, in the recent years. I think that the mm. last two years have been booming for that kind of industry. We call it the mm. industry of living together. It's really mm. a lot of people realizing that the way how to live with other people is not aligned with the preferences, it's becoming dysfunctional, uh, as they have re rules imposed on them that aren't really the result of their preferences, aren't really means to what should be achieved by uh, those rules and are seeking alternative uh, solutions to that. And uh, there is a way forward, and that's uh, one model. I think there are many ways forward, and the most crucial one is innovation, is trying to uh, 
uh, have more skin in the game, bring back learning to this mm -hmm. field as well. So have people offering new ways, new frameworks that you can mm -hmm. voluntarily adopt and mm -hmm. where you have the people bearing the consequences if they fail. So that's the crucial mm -hmm. first step. And it's very uh, the opposite of what we assume to be politics. Uh, nowadays, mm -hmm. is, um, today's politics is like you fail and it gives you more power. Uh, <laughs> the problem that you're there to solve, you've uh, increased and, and you've made worse. And now it's even mm -hmm. more need and legitimacy for you having more power to, to solve the now even larger problem. Uh, mm. So we need to go back out of this visual circle and uh, doing it about a more entrepreneurial uh, way in mm. people experimenting with new legal frameworks, offering them mm. up in a very transparent way, in a peer-to-peer -peer mm. way that's respectful to other people, offering mm. a choice not because we're all seeing and know everything. It's mm. uh, because some people with some experience uh, figured out something which they think will be a better solutions to problems uh some people have not everyone mm. uh mm. and offering that uh, and bearing the consequences if if uh, they fail and are really thinking a lot about how you avoid that kind of kind of bad incentives of power structures and so on so it's part incentive optimization a part mm. of being really transparent have a contractual nature uh, mm. and it's inspired by the practical experience first of special economic zones which are underestimated mm. in its historical impact uh, mm. uh, for example the asian uh, or chinese miracle is not so mm. much the, the, the great insights of some chinese mm. leaders it's the trial and error process triggered by role models first hong kong singapore then shenzhen as mm. really figuring oh wow something is working <laughs> and it's working with an immense dynamic not in a perfect way it's not a utopian scheme it's just oh you realize something is working now you try to figure out the causal realist approach figuring out what is working here mm. uh, and it's really about uh, uh, having the tolerance to experiment with a legal framework uh, figuring mm. out if uh, there are better ways to do something and that's what special economic zones provide so there are already mm. 4500 special economic zones all around the planet because mm. politicians realize well something must be working there but most fail because they are not going far enough uh, mm. uh, it's not enough to just have an industry park with low taxes uh, mm. uh, people are not uh, uh, Homines economici, like the economic <laughs> model guys, but we are holistic entities. We're thinking mm. about where we want to live, where we want to raise kids uh, and so on. So by combining innovations in residential uh, mm. offers and uh, industrial offers or frameworks for economic development, you can bring together two fields where we have a lot of entrepreneurial experience already. And it's just bring together special economic zones plus that's called the gated communities or, mm -hmm. or um, entrepreneurial communities kind of uh, lifestyle offers that are different for different people, uh, but still show that there's a demand for that, that there are entrepreneurs that can survive on the market because of what people voluntarily choose to opt for those kind of lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that, but there's just the historical cases which we used to show it's not a utopian scheme. It's like you bring mm -hmm. together two things that are already working. And most crucially, you open up the field of innovation there. So I don't think mm -hmm. it's just a gated mm -hmm. community plus especially economics. And it's just realizing, wow, already by those two things, uh, we're working out if you open up the, the space for experimentation we can expect a lot of different legal frameworks and uh, ways of living together that are much closer aligned with what people really want in the long term and are much more conducive to the flourishing and cooperation 
And if you look at uh, the size of this industry and how much suffering and failure there is to the dysfunctional ways of living together, it's immense. I think it's the, the biggest uh, potential, mm -hmm. uh, the industry with the biggest potential uh, today uh, that we have. And we already see a lot of this pioneering spirit entering it. And of course, different people will approach it in different ways and have look for different USPs and, 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 and pinpoint to different uh, approaches. Uh, the Free Private City Foundation as a Swiss foundation tries to be very neutral and just uh, like fostering the spirit of trying out something new, of giving innovation a chance and, and looking at it in this respectful peer-to-peer -peer way of really human beings trying to figure out synergies with other human beings who are not everywhere alike, but find some common ground where they can improve uh, uh, their surroundings, their environments and the way they live together with other people. And that's uh, of course a demand for uh, working neighborhoods uh, for uh, cities as the infrastructure of cooperation. Uh, it's where not only you go to have a job, but you get inspired, you have an exchange of ideas uh, and really have to produce the hubs where we'll have the innovation of the future that we don't know right now. And we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to tell from crazy ideas because most ideas will be crazy, will turn mm -hmm. out not to work. And we don't know which ideas will be the most important ones for the future. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I, I think it's crucial, the free private city model that was an uh, uh, in, in, uh, innovation by a German uh, a mining entrepreneur, Titus Gable, who wrote a book, uh, Free Private Cities, that I recommend mm -hmm. to uh, everyone. And he thought about a practical way, uh, how he would, as an entrepreneur, approach that. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, that I think is one of the most promising ways to go about it. Uh, it's first about getting that kind of, uh, sovereignty that the special economic zone has, but add on a special, the aspect of a special administrative zone. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's something that's already there that has happened before that we've seen in the Emirates, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and that you can improve upon. So it's a gradual mm -hmm. improvement upon tried and trusted structures and hoping to bring in a whole new level of diversity uh, of people mm. figuring out in what ways they want to live and with whom they want to live. And, and for some, it'll be very intentional, community-like, mm -hmm. uh, very close alignment. Uh, and for others, it'll be just a very basic infrastructure which leaves you alone uh, uh, mm. if you go your way in a, in a voluntary and peaceful fashion. But there will be a lot of things in between. Um, I, I, of course, have my personal expectations, what I think will are the most promising ways to go forward, which will be the best offers for most people. Uh, but we really need to be humble in that entrepreneurial approach that we need to figure out. And there's a lot to figure out and a lot to learn because it's really a, a new field that becomes possible because the institution of the nation state uh, is, is failing and the mm. uh, structure that we have, the geopolitical structure is in is changing. Uh, mm. Of course, uh, it's an uh, open secret. <laughs> I think <laughs> that, that the American age won't go on forever. Uh, mm. uh, so there's a different kind of structure emerging and we've got a lot to figure out, but a lot of space to try out to find more uh, beneficial ways uh, to live together within the challenging world uh, as it's developing, mm -hmm. as it's changing. Well, so two things that uh, that your uh, talk about free cities has uh, brought up. One, one is this idea of a Bitcoin citadel, which I think is a form of a free city. Uh, but the other one is uh, a little more practical. Uh, what's going on in Bitcoin Beach uh, out in El Salvador? That, that seems to be 
semi-government sanctioned, but it's it's really sort of like an economic uh, free, uh, free economic zone without the government sort of having designated it as one. And we are seeing innovation there. We're seeing a lot of people try different things there. Um, there are even people moving there because of, uh, of the nature of it. And um, you know maybe they're really into surfing or something. It's apparently like a really, really nice surfing zone. So um, what are your thoughts on like uh, sort of a non-governmental um, free city, uh, one, one that isn't necessarily sanctioned by the governing authorities, uh, but are sort of nevertheless have a lot of those qualities of people uh, being in community and sort of trusting each other and trying different things. Uh, well, with the free private uh, cities foundation, we tend to be very pragmatic. So we mm. uh, accept uh, that governments as they are, uh, as nation states uh, have a lot of power and are in mm. control and it doesn't make sense at that stage or even in the future. We don't believe in revolutions. We don't mm. think, believe in armed rebellion and, and mm -hmm. just grasping the power to just give it back to the people once you have it and so on. Mm. So we think uh, you need first to understand the world and then try to figure out what makes best sense and not be mm -hmm. idealistic, too idealistic in the wrong, uh, maybe mm -hmm. Keynesian sense, as you <laughs> said before, and trying to construct things. So you try to work with what's there. Uh, so uh, having also win-win uh, agreements with people in power is important. So it's about incentives, mm. about figuring out what those people want, what mm. they need, and how you can find long-term uh, arrangements with those guys because they are there if you like it or not. Uh, mm -hmm. And we think that we can learn from the mining industry and we can learn from the special economic zones industry that it's possible if the incentives are right, uh, not perfect, but there it's possible to have long-term arrangements because uh, in the end, uh, uh, they are human beings as well, and, and uh, there is some uh, economics in the long term tends to prevail in the sense that, that, that there's, uh, uh, yeah, uh, people prefer health to disease and, and life to death. That's, that's how Ludwig von Mises put it. In the end, there's some trust and some optimism that things can work out between people, even if the interests are on the line, that they can work mm. out. Uh, mm. um, and uh, that's the approach uh, we take. Uh, of course, uh, we think that a lot of governmental structures and services are dysfunctional. And mm. it's why we're not coming in saying we'll make it better, but uh, we'll mm. try to figure out where's the pain, where's the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, a lot of the countries where we start, of course, are countries which have a very hard time to attract investment because there's no trust. All the trust has been uh, consumed. Uh, uh, so even if they offer like zero, zero taxes uh, or, or subsidies and so on, um, you yeah, have a hard time get this long-term trust as an investor, as a foreigner uh, to go there. Uh, and that's, I, I think that's, that's where the pain and, and most governments at least claim to be in favor of economic development. Uh, so it's a more mm. pragmatic approach. Uh, but then of course, there is the bottom upside and mm. uh, Bitcoin Citadel is a meme, but that doesn't mean I'm not taking it seriously. I take it very seriously. Memes are expressions mm. of longing, and a visual mm. style, aesthetic expression of a longing. And I think that longing is very real. And I very much like uh, the, this meme because it expresses what a lot of people are looking for. Uh, and I think the free private cities is a way trying to answer in a realistic way this longing and trying to mm. make offers to the longing and, and figuring out what, what is it about. I don't think it's about 
living uh, as a rich Bitcoin holder in a castle on your own. I don't think that's mm -hmm. the point of the Bitcoin Citadel meme. Uh, I think the longing is much more to be more in control uh, uh, of your mm -hmm. life and the way you live together with other people. It's not you want mm -hmm. to be uh, in a recluse uh, uh, <laughs> on your own. It's you want to be have safe ground again to be able to trust again, to interact again, to cooperate again with people on a more sound basis. And that's why maybe you have the expression of a citadel on, 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 mm. on a mountaintop or something like that. It's like a really rock solid base from which again, you can venture out uh, and you can start trusting other people and, 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 and build up long-term structures and play long-term games uh, again. Um, and uh, of course, a lot of it is not in the building, it's in the framework, it's in the mindset. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think crucial is so in a sense, the legal framework and what kind of roles, uh, what kind mm -hmm. of incentives. Uh, um, um, so I think part of the innovation is there. Um, and then uh, you mentioned uh, El Salvador. I think again, it's more important to look from the bottom up. It was mm -hmm. one individual initiative uh, of one person who thought he, bring, can, he can bring mm -hmm. good to a country while a lot of people don't uh, uh, have savings uh, because mm -hmm. they don't have a bank account, haven't figured out how else they could be saving uh, and are just living from day to day. And he thought that Bitcoin would be a solution for those people in particular, that they'd be in a bigger need. And he tried out and uh, mm -hmm. maybe there was ridicule. Maybe most people wouldn't take it serious at the beginning. And he persevered uh, uh, and he tried to increase the adoption and bring it as a technology, as a voluntary offer. And so from the bottom up, something positive seemed to have emerged uh, with uh, more and more people of interest moving there, finding ways mm -hmm. to interact with the population there, some impact being felt. And then a very popular president figure out, wow, we are in a situation <laughs> where we don't have a central bank. We're already using the dollar, uh, uh, but we are, we don't always want to be 100% aligned with the United States. We feel that mm -hmm. the geopolitics is changing. So he's been talking to China before, as mm -hmm. most uh, presidents would do in this new geopolitical situation that we are in. And then he figured out maybe it's it's a good idea to embrace what's going on instead of uh, 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 erasing it or, or trying to, to really rule it out. So uh, I think it was a good take. I'm fairly skeptical uh, to now think, oh, wow, he was a brilliant president who realized mm -hmm. the potential of Bitcoin and it was a top-down decision mm -hmm. that made out of El Salvador a Bitcoin utopia. Uh, uh, but I, I think it's just an expression of the dynamics bottom-up that are happening of people even venturing far uh, uh, outside of their home countries uh, and trying to find new space of cooperation with other people, trying to figure out no ways, new ways to go along our business in cooperating with other people uh, and bringing trust to locations like El Salvador who lacked a lot in trust. This is one of the highest murder rates, uh, of course, uh, concentrated in urban areas, uh, a similar country with a lot of issues and, and uh, uh, so I think it's a step of trust to go there and, and figuring out that most people are really in the sense of life that they really want to have a good life and want to improve the life of the children. And, and it's, it's fun. It's great to find win-win synergies with those people, no matter where they live and, uh, and not wait for any kind of institutional change or pattern, but try it out. And if it fails so bad, uh, but if it works out, it can be a role model and, uh, that's really, I think, how change happens. I uh, would have hoped for it to have get a more in, uh, sustainable uh, thing. The problem with uh, uh, polit political reform 
from mm. the top down is that it tends not to be sustainable because it's so closely attached to the to those in power. And if they mm. change, and in Latin America, it changes a lot. It's like the pendulum always swinging between left and right. And then, of course, uh, you figure out, oh, he was a bad guy again. Uh, mm-hmm. and of course, everything he did was bad. So we got to do the opposite of what he did. Uh, and it's kind of win-lose politics. Uh, um, and I, I think it's really better to start with small spaces, with uh, trying to have experimental room, uh, with maybe not going for a nation state right away, but looking for zones and figuring out if a zone can work with a slightly different legal uh, infrastructure, figure it out if it works out, if, if it's a win-win situation for the people and then go from there. So that, that's uh, the free private cities model to really go first. You get this agreement of that. It's a small zone. It's not, you're not taking over a country. It's uh, uh, most of the more interesting projects are really greenfield developments. It's like places, mm. there is nothing, there's no development. It's, it's, and there is no a sensible way of thinking that there'll be development uh, because mm-hmm. no one would in his right mind go there and invest there because there's nothing there. And uh, um, there's no capital there, uh, no infrastructure mm-hmm. there. And then you try to get the framework where it makes sense to invest, where you have the right incentives, where there's a big economic upside, where you just don't have to convince people uh, for mm-hmm. the brotherly love that they go there and help. It's uh, you really find a win-win situation of people who think that they maybe figured out something and uh, can have a profitable offering for uh, both sides, uh, because mm. if it's a better solution for more people, it'll be profitable for both. Uh, otherwise, it'll, it won't work out in the long sense. So you bring that kind of realistic entrepreneurial spirit that has been so aptly understood and described by the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, uh, and you try to figure out that entrepreneurship can be a force for good. Uh, uh, of course, uh, nowadays there's a lot of distortion, so I wouldn't uh, <laughs> uh, underline it to 100%. Uh, so I think, of course, there's a lot of misaligned entrepreneurship, uh, uh, but I, I still profoundly believe that in particular, if we uh, uh, get rid of those illusions, those monetary illusions of, of linking maybe personal success with just the number on your bank account or some ridiculous thing or the car you drive, uh, and so on, uh, but going for more long-term building up of capital structures and, and, and having long-term beneficial relations, I still believe in, in, in the force of good of catalectic, that means economic in a sense, interaction cooperation between different people, which don't have to be think alike in every little aspect of their lives, but have a, a common ground and common understanding. That was fantastic, and I, I, I hope uh, people check out the Free Cities Project. But uh, but I wanted to get back a little bit towards Bitcoin uh, because uh, you know for a lot of Austrian econ- economists uh, it, it is sort of a revelation and it's it's something good and obviously Safedine's uh, written a whole book on that. Uh, but for others, they seem strangely resistant um, and not necessarily the academics, although there's plenty of that, uh, but uh, especially the old school gold bugs, the, the people that, um, you know, come from that tradition have been uh, in the Austrian school, maybe libertarian for a long time. What, like, make the uh like what what's going on why why is there a split first of all and second you know uh what what can bitcoin teach austrian economists about the nature of reality and how uh, how do we handle that 
I think it can teach a lot of humility, uh, mm. which gets lost, uh, in mm. particular, if you pursue Austrian economics as if it's in the bad modern sense science, like, you mm -hmm. know, mm. you are the expert, you learn it, mm. and you have your credentials, and now you got to explain to people who are mm. on the <laughs> ground, living it, how they should go about their lives, but if you haven't ever started a business, have never been in the shoes of someone really doing it on the ground. So there's a challenge in particular academic economics, uh, mm. that you have this top-down approach, even if you mm. think that you're following Austrian economics uh, or it replaces a kind of ideology, it's like this mm. wrong idealism that you want to not describe the world as it is, but how you would like it to be, uh, mm. uh, how it should be. It's not because the world is so complex, it's just like how you like it or you, how, how you think mm -hmm. it should be. Uh, mm -hmm. And that can turn out to be very wrong because it's really hard to keep track of all the paradoxical uh, relations uh, on the world. So I think it's, it's over our mind to really th rethink the world anew um, uh, entirely. Uh, and then there were very good reasons to be skeptical towards Bitcoin. I, I was myself. Uh, mm. I uh, happened up on Bitcoin very early. Uh, mm. Too early, I'd say, because back then it made most sense to be skeptical because there was mm. no track record, nothing to prove that it could work out. A lot mm. of very bright people being very skeptical, a lot of cryptographers mm. even being very skeptical. Mm. So a lot of the criticism that is brought up now could have been brought up in 2009, 2010 uh, mm. and would have made sense. So mm. I, even I at the stage, I thought, yeah, it makes sense to be skeptical. And then it taught us humility in the sense that the pattern emerging that we've seen mm. out of the, the behavior of human beings, uh, out of the adoption pattern, that it's not alike something else. It's not mm. a typical cyclical structure of just a new hype, of just news, some new internet money which gets traction and it's feeding itself and it's a hype and then of course it's over. It doesn't look like that. I mean, in, in, by mm. now, I think it's obvious and anyone who's... Uh, was still, I mean, bringing up the same criticism as it was something new at the new Beanie Baby thing or something mm -hmm. like that. I really, there you need to be empathic and realize, well, we are all human beings and there must be some rationalization going on. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe there are vested interests. Uh, maybe you really made a career out of something and you have a hard mm -hmm. time turning it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and of course, even an Austrian economist has to live uh, from something. <laughs> <laughs> and so most people turn make compromises. And then, uh, of course, if you're into economics, the thing that seems to bring most money is, is finance and investing. And it's because of the incentives and the distortions that are already there, it's prone to be a con game in a sense, even if you have the most honest intentions. Uh, so you look at it for the one side, that's why you're skeptical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because anything new and big promises and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. And on the other hand, it could, uh, of course, explain a reluctance to learning because it's not you are not paid for mm. figuring out something new. You're usually paid for a sales job. You bring in new mm. people to an asset, uh, and that's mm. how you make money uh, uh, usually. Uh, and and so I think that's a very realistic and down to earth approach. Of course, Austrian economists. And it's very hard to say who's an Austrian uh, economist. I mean, it's not they are human beings uh, like we are, and and so not every Keynesian is an evil. A person and, and not every Austrian economist is a saint. Uh, uh, so for me, Bitcoin taught me humility um, mm. in, in the sense that, uh, wow, it's it's impressive how you can be surprised uh, mm. uh, by things. I mean, there's been some vindication, mm -hmm. <laughs> fortunately, as well for beliefs. And I still believe that, that in particular, for me, this monetary theory, 
was the closest thing we had to understand, and Karl Menger's Menger Mises mm -hmm. Montero theory is the closest thing we had in the theory to understand. It wasn't entirely sufficient, so we can't mm -hmm. be sure that Menger and Mises, if they were alive today, they really would have grasped immediately uh, the potential and, 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 and what was going on there. And uh, I, I don't mean it in the sense that you really become a partisan of Bitcoin, that you, mm. it's not like you adopt it as, as your religion, not necessarily, but just having respect and, and predicting well enough in 2010 that still in 2021 mm -hmm. it would be a thing and it wouldn't just mm -hmm. be a thing uh, mm -hmm. uh it'll go through these successive cycles of adoption uh which mm -hmm. are just impressive i mean very few things in history or maybe nothing has shown that kind of pattern of adoption of becoming a, a major asset uh, within mm. that little time with that kind of infrastructure with the kind of hope placed in it and so on so i think there's something unique and that's being so something being unique teaches you humility it's not like everything mm. repeats it's you need to keep open-minded and try to understand the theory is there to explain reality it's not to there is it's not like a, a prophecy uh, that you fall mm. as human beings to try to figure out in their time how principles work how with which words to use to categorize certain phenomena and i think austrian economy is still useful but it's not theory is never sufficient you still need that approach you need the humility you need empathy uh, for human beings and it's still not over and still every day we try to figure <laughs> out something new and something surprising is there and we try to keep up to date with what's happening and it's almost impossible <laughs> with all those people learning changing um, bring up new interpretations ideas solutions and keeping up with that uh, uh, so i i think that's the one one of the reasons or another reasons of course it's been a surprising dynamic that we've seen here mm -hmm. Uh, it's within the field where it's mostly con games, so really mm -hmm. hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys. We all know really bad incentives. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, and that's always a thing where do you draw lines, um, mm -hmm. uh, kind of blame games uh, do you play, what, what's, what's your job, what, what, uh, what's the <laughs> rationalizer for what you do, how you earn your money, and, and so on. Uh, and uh, we need to accept that for most people, knowledge in itself isn't really an end in itself. Uh, mm. it's, so I, our, lang our language hasn't been constructed and hasn't been evolved to really explain reality. It's been evolved to communicate, to make mm -hmm. cooperation possible, but to lie as well, to, to obfuscate mm. and so on. And we got to live with that. So that's, uh, of course, we are not robots seeking uh, uh, knowledge uh, every minute of our life. And then a lot of behavior shaped by interests and, and uh, compromises that we need to make. Uh, but there was some hope in the Austrian School of Economics that uh, in between or hidden behind this, this all these human contexts, there is the hope of looking, getting some glimpses of a shared reality and thus finding a bond to other human beings. It's in this mm. common humiliation, maybe by reality that we find a link, a bond uh, with each other. And we learn to argue with each other and doing it in a peaceful way. And even friendships can be formed if you disagree. And which is mm. not the usual way we work, but it's <laughs> possible, or at least it was a hope. I mean, it was a failed hope, of course, at the time and it's been, failing again 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 but i think it's a great hope and, and i i think it's worth to keep that alive that hope that that, that in the knowledge there's uh, or seeking knowledge uh, seeking understanding there is a potential basis for mutual trust and mutual understanding
Well, that that was great. And uh, I, I feel like I could talk to you forever because there, there's so much in this book and uh, in, in your ideas about uh, free cities that I feel like I can really delve into. And, and uh, hopefully I can have you on again. And I, I, I honestly don't usually say that to my guests. So where can people find you? Where can, uh, where can you uh, be contacted? And where, where's your stuff? FreePrivateCities.com privatecities.com. Most of our work is in German. So I've written more than a dozen books. Only a few mm -hmm. have been translated to English. Uh, so my German uh, language work is on scholarium.at, but uh, most of my English language uh, oriented practical work now is on the freeprivatecities.com. Okay. And uh, do you have Twitter or something like that? that yes, uh, scholar scholarium underscore at mm. is my personal Twitter. Okay. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Um, hopefully people learned uh, quite a bit about Austrian economics and, uh, and the role of Bitcoin within it. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot.